who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This question is perhaps the most important question you and I will ever consider. And more importantly than the question is how you answer it. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus merely a good guy? A good guide to life? An example to follow? Where we wear little cute bracelets and ask the question, what would Jesus do? A sort of moral relativism that what God cares most about is our goodness, our obedience, doing what Jesus did? Was Jesus merely a man who did some good things, who lived a good life, a moral example to those around Him, and tragically died at the hands of an oppressive government? Injustice at its heights. Was Jesus some amalgamation, some half-man, half-God creation that God created to come and die as a substitute for sinners? Was Jesus fully God and fully man, or as we heard earlier in the Wonderful reminder of the, the life and ministry of R.C. Sproul, truly God and truly man. Who is Jesus? One of the temptations that you and I face in our Christian life is creating a Jesus of our own imagination. Well, my Jesus is like this. My Jesus would never do that. One of the dangers that we face in creating our own Jesus is that the Jesus that we create is nothing more than a mere image of ourselves. Our Jesus just happens to like the things that we like. Our Jesus just happens to like and, you know, is kind about the particular problems that we like. Our Jesus seems to forgive sin very quickly, brushing it away as if it was of no importance and no significance. Our Jesus doesn't demand much of us. He encourages us to be good, to be kind to others, to go to church when we have the occasion, to be all around just a good old nice person. Friend, the tragedy in that Jesus is that is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is a, is a quite radical fellow He calls upon His disciples to leave their families behind. In fact, in one such occasion, He tells a young man, 
let the dead bury their own dead. I've got things to do, and if you want to follow me, you've got to forget about dead people. Your dead family members mean nothing. Or to another young man, he says to him, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and, and be poor, homeless. To another, he says, chop off your hand and pluck out your eyeballs. And to a group of housewives and fishermen and farmers, he says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' demands are so high, so great. Who is this that commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? Who is Jesus? Well, friend, to be helped in answering that question, we're going to consider this morning Luke's gospel. Luke has set out to write to his friend Theophilus to give him an orderly account that Theophilus might be certain of the things he has come to believe. Luke, let me, let me help you understand this, is writing to Christians to help Christians have certainty of the things that they have come to know and believe. In other words, Luke writes to ensure that we have not been tempted to create a Jesus of our own imagination. And thus he writes to give certainty that our minds are filled and informed by who Jesus actually is and not what we want Jesus to be. And so he picks up his pen to write. And we've learned as we've studied this short section, this sort of opening prologue to the life and ministry. We, we have yet come to a point in, when G, in which Jesus has done any ministry. This will be coming in the weeks ahead. This is all just prelude. This is all just background, preparation work for the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week we learned what true repentance is. What it looked like to, to turn your life from living life your own way and to turn and follow the one true and living God. We heard John's testimony that Jesus is greater than him. That, that he's unworthy even to stoop down and untie his, his sandal straps. He is, he is less than Jesus. Jesus is the one that the story is about. And John, we are told as our story concluded, because of his call to repentance, of the king, he ends up locked in prison. And with that in mind, we come now to the final days of Jesus' life before beginning his public ministry. In Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now you'll notice we're kind of in the middle of the headings there, just as a way of a reminder. Your chapter and verses are not inspired, neither are the headings. And sometimes they are in the wrong place. And as I read this morning, I want you to listen for the main idea. And the main idea is this, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now I want you to listen for that as I read through our passage this morning. 
beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathas, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elisi, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simon, the son of Zechot, the son of Jodah, the son of Johanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Cosmo, the son of Eldam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Elkim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amadideim, the son of Amon, the son of Arani, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arvachvach, the son of Nshim, the son of Noah, the son of Lemek, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mehelio, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority of their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to him or to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, I hope in reading that whole entire section you saw Luke's point. It is this, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second Adam, sent to deliver God's people from their captivity to sin and Satan. 
So my time this morning spent with you is, is hopefully to, to press in this point to us, that Jesus is the Son of God. And what does it mean that Jesus is God's eternal Son? So our passage this morning has really three points. Three points, if you take notes. The first there comes in verses 21 through 22. That Jesus is the beloved Son. That Jesus is the beloved Son. Then, in that long genealogy, which I know you all hope to learn more about, in verses 23 through 38, Jesus is the better Son. The better Son. And I hope to press in to Luke's point of including it in this section. Then thirdly, Jesus is the obedient son, the obedient son, there in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So these are the three points we're going to consider this morning. First, Jesus is the beloved son. Now, of course, the scene is set for us in the previous section. John has been baptizing people uh, there at the Jordan River. He has become a bit of a sensation um, towns are abuzz, the, the communities are speaking and talking. Uh, if you're going down to get your morning breakfast and coffee, uh, no doubt John's baptism is going to be a point of conversation. What's up with this fellow? He's wearing camel's uh, fur. He looks quite ridiculous out there, and it seems as if everyone is going to be baptized by him. Perhaps we need to go and get baptized as well. And so the whole town is a sort of a, an uproar about what Jesus is doing or rather what John is doing. And then we find ourselves here, Jesus submitting himself to John's baptism. And a number of things we want to note here. First of all, Jesus is not being baptized because he's a sinner. Of course, we don't have time to look at several other passages, but one simple passage that you just want to maybe just know, memorize, commit to memory, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He didn't need to be baptized for the remission of his sins, but rather he is identifying himself with the people of God. One of the themes that Luke will pick up on in this gospel is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. We say it this way, Jesus died in my place, in, in your place, in our stead. And so he here is identifying with sinners, identifying with the nation of Israel. But more than that, we see here that more than identifying, Luke's overarching point is that Jesus is the beloved Son sent from above. Notice what he says. As Jesus was praying, there in verse 21, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now I want to point out a couple things. Number one, it does not say the Spirit is a dove. Okay, all right. Now that just probably blew up some of your decorations at home. But I'm sorry. Uh, it says that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Okay, well, let's think about what does this look like? Uh, the Spirit descends like a, a hovering bird. 
a bird that hovers gracefully. A dove isn't erratic in its flying, but, but graceful in its flight. It, it was hovering there. Hmm, this sounds familiar. This, this sounds uh, almost uh, Bible-like, biblical in, in nature. Well, if you were to turn your Bibles all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, what do we find the Spirit doing but, but hovering like a bird? This is what the Spirit does. It's, it's demonstrating here something of a new creation has come. God is about doing something new. Something new. But more than that, we see that it is sort of an affirmation. It is a seal of approval. All of God's anointed leaders in the Old Testament were full of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here is marked off as one who has been sent by God, one affirmed as the true Savior, the servant of the Lord. And so the the Spirit descends on him in bodily form. Jesus is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But more than that, we see the narrative drives forward just a little bit more in verse 22 and says that a voice came from heaven. Now, if you know your Bibles well, God rarely speaks audibly. God often, the way he speaks is through prophets, through his people. When God speaks, he's going to say something very, very important, isn't he? And here, he declares that Jesus is his beloved son. He's the beloved son, eternally loved by the Father. He's the beloved son. Here the Father speaks of a word of affirmation. This is my son, whom I have eternally loved. This is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. But notice here, he also goes on to say, with you I am well pleased well pleased he is the perfect son perfectly obedient to his father's will the son has come to do the father's will in this way the father is well pleased with his servant now throughout this passage is the backdrop and the backbone of psalm 2 Because not only is Luke driving us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, but more than that, that He is the royal Son of God. He is the descendant of David. He is the long-awaited King. He is the Messiah. In Psalm 2, David speaks about a king, a long-awaited king, who would come and be adopted by God and be His beloved Son who will rule and reign over God's people and save them from their enemies. It wasn't David. David knew it wasn't him, but it would be one of his kids. But also we see behind this Isaiah 42, verse 1, in that servant that God had promised to had come, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. This whole scene is meant for you and I to be convinced that Jesus is the beloved Son. And you might think, well, of course, I know that. I believe that for many, many decades. Good. My hope for you this morning is to be renewed in your trust that Jesus is who he said he was. That Jesus is the servant king who came to die for sinners. 
And if Jesus is the servant king, then he is Lord over your life. He should rule and reign over the decisions you and I make. He is our king. But more than the beloved son, as the story unfolds, he is the better son. Now, why is this genealogy placed right here in the midst of the story? I mean, couldn't he be like Matthew and start the story with it? I mean, who, who starts a story and then pauses it to go through a list of names? In fact, most of the names listed here aren't even found in your Old Testament. It's a quite strange list. And a lot of scholars have spent a lot of time whining and complaining of why Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy isn't the same. And we could spend a whole lot of time discussing that, and and it seems to be the most logical conclusion is one of two things. Number one is that this is the genealogy of Mary, and a lot of folks have believed that for many, many years, that this is not the genealogy of Joseph, but rather that of Mary, and that's why there's difference between Matthew and Luke. But more likely, what he's doing here is because of the Leverite marriages that would have happened in the nation of Israel, there would have been changes to the family line throughout. But regardless of where one comes, the point remains the same. One of the main differences is that Matthew starts with Jesus and goes to Abraham, and here, or or rather starts with Abraham and goes to Jesus, and here we have a, a reversal, don't we? He starts with Jesus and goes to where? All the way to Adam. You see, Luke has a a bigger theological point that he's trying to drive at. The number one point is that Jesus is the better son. That Jesus is a human being. That he really lived and died. And you might think, well, why do we have to emphasize the humanity of Jesus? Well, because there was a whole movement early on in the church, a false teaching that taught that Jesus was just merely a man. He, he just kind of, uh, he was God in man form. He wasn't truly God, or rather truly man. But the Bible clearly affirms that Jesus was fully human. One example even comes here in our passage this morning, there in verse 2. Of chapter 4, we are told that he was hungry. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't need bread. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need the kind of natural things that we need. No, human beings need these things, don't they? And so it points even here in our story about the humanity of Christ. But bigger than that, we see that Jesus is the second Adam. One of the themes that is picked up throughout Luke and Acts is that Jesus is a replacement where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. He is the true and better Adam, is what we sing in our hymns. You see, Adam and Eve were a representative. Adam was a representative of humanity. It was as if we sort of voted and said, Adam, we want you to go and represent us there in the garden. And so he represents us. And and of course, we know the story. He lives in relationship with God, in communion with God, and yet decides that I want to be king. I want to rule my life. I don't want to submit to you. I choose to do life my own way. 
and of course the devastating effects of which is that they are then cast out of the garden. Then, as the story goes on, there is a, yet another Adam, isn't there? Noah. He, he's yet like another Adam, and, and we, the kind of hope is like, okay, all right, God reset everything, everything sort of, you know, will wipe away all the evil, and all those wicked, nasty people, you know, they're drowning, and you know, I know you, you're celebrating, you're cheering, ha ha, you sinner, you died, ha ha. But what happens? Not a minute after they get off that boat, what do we find the problem? The problem is in Noah's heart just as much as it was in those people's heart. And Noah and his family rebel against him. And all seems to be lost until, until God calls Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. He says, Abram, I'm going to set my love on you. You're going to be my covenant people. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Abram's like, yeah, let's do it. And not a second after that, his wife laughs and says, how can an old lady have kids? And they doubt the promises of God. And, and, and Israel was to be the, the second Adam. They were to be God's representative among the world. They were to be the light to the nations. But we know the story well. They failed. Time and time again, the nation of Israel rebelled against God. And so God had to send a new Israel. A new Adam. One who is perfect and blemished. One who had all the family likings, who, who had all of the, the family pedigree. He was a part of the family. He was an Israelite. He was a human. But there was something different about him. He was perfect and holy. And where the first Adam fell and where Israel rebelled, this Adam was perfect and holy and righteous. He lived the life we should have and died the death we deserve. This is the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. Not only was Christ passive in his obedience in coming to this earth to die the death we deserved as a sacrifice, but he was also active in his obedience to Christ. Active. Meaning that he actually faced temptation and difficulty and trial. He was hungry and had to be fed. He was tempted to doubt God's promises. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, doubting whether or not God's promises would come. He said, no, 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 not, not my will, but your will be done. This leads us then to our third point, that Jesus is the obedient son. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. We're told that Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1 of chapter 4, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This was the arid wilderness surrounding the Galilean, Judean countryside. There wasn't a lot of water. The wind was hot, uh, was swift. The sun was hot. It was a harsh place for anyone to live for 40 days, we are told. This is not by accident. We are told that the Spirit led him there. We are to understand that this is of a divine initiative. Just as God led his people from captivity in, in Egypt into the wilderness, they could have gone a shorter way. There was 
There was a shorter way to, to the promised land. But God led them out into the wilderness. And of course, because of their rebellion, they were there for 40 years. And so there's some symbolism here that Jesus is following the same path as Israel before. And this time, instead of failing, He will succeed. We are told that He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And it was upon this occasion that we are told of Diabolus, the devil. Now, fascinatingly enough, Luke doesn't introduce him. He just says, the devil. And everybody's supposed to know who he is. A reminder that the early church taught on Satan. That he is a real person. An angel, a fallen angel, who is in rebellion against God. And the, that, that little snake that whispered there to Adam in the garden. The enemy of God's people has come to confront the eternal Son of God. And it was in the midst of his hunger, in the midst of his desperation, that the enemy comes to him. Just as the nation of Israel, in the midst of their desperation and their hunger, they were tempted to doubt God. We're told that Satan comes and tempts him in three times, or, or more importantly, maybe perhaps three types of temptations. Three types of temptations. And I, again, just want to note that overarching point. Notice the, the repetition throughout. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. If you're truly the Son of God, let me help you prove it to those around you. Satan's like, hey, let me, let me help you out here. Now, I don't think, if you were to read and study this, that, that Satan really believes otherwise. In other words, Satan, the devil knows who Jesus is. He's not here trying to discover upon himself, well, is Jesus really who he said he was? No, we know that because every time Jesus showed up into town, it was as if Satan emptied hell of his angels in order to fill people with these evil spirits. And also notice here that each time the enemy attacks him, Jesus responds with Scripture. But not just any Scripture. He's quoting from only one book in the Old Testament, and that is Deuteronomy. The very book that Moses has to write because the nation of Israel failed in rebellion against God, and he's trying to get them ready for the promised land. It reminds us that God's promises are sufficient to sustain God's people in the darkness of the wilderness. God's Word is a weapon of warfare against the schemes of the enemy. This is what the Apostle Paul taught the church in Ephesus. The sword of the Spirit. The helmet of salvation. We're reminded that God's Word is a tool to fight against. And by quoting Deuteronomy here, Jesus demonstrates that He is the new Israel where they rebelled against God and fell to temptation. He continually entrusts Himself to God. Let's look very briefly at these three temptations. Number one, we see he's tempted to abandon the Father's will. He's tempted to abandon the Father's will. Satan says to him, hey, look, you're hungry. Why don't you just feed yourself? No doubt Jesus could have taken some stones and turned them into bread. He did it in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000. Jesus can do miraculous things. We know this to be true. And Satan says to him, 
Why don't you make your power about you? Why don't you selfishly and miraculously provide for yourself? Use your divine power to provide selfishly for yourself. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 And He humbled you and let you, your, let you hunger and fed you with manna which you do not know nor do your fathers know that He might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As He faces this temptation to, to serve Himself Jesus quickly responds with the Scripture that affirms it's about God's purposes and not my own. I'm here to do the Father's will, not my own will, Satan. Where Adam wanted to do life his own way, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do life my own way. I'm going to do it God's way. Where Israel said, you know, we want a king like the nation around us. We want to do things like everyone else. And abandoning God's way, God here proves otherwise. The second temptation sort of seeks to dig down a little bit deeper, doesn't it? There in verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And we're not quite sure what this looks like, but nonetheless, it's not really how he did it, but what he did that's most important. He shows him all the kingdoms, all this power, all this glory, doesn't he? Wondrous scene. Look at all the kingdoms of the world. He says to them, to you, Satan says this, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. This almost sounds just like what he told Adam in, in, in the garden, doesn't it? If you will just eat, then your eyes will be open, and you will know good and evil. God is withholding good from you. You see, if you'll just worship me, then you will have everything you want. This is the lie that sin whispers in our ear every single day. The tragic reminder is that sin never satisfies a sin-sick soul. Sin never does. It's all vainglory. Now you might be questioning, well, how is it that Satan has authority to do this? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Perhaps he's deceived. Perhaps he thinks he has this sort of authority to delegate out these kingdoms. And I think it's interesting to see the way that, that Jesus responds is to kind of drive at the point. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, it drives to the overarching point that Jesus is about the Father's will, about following God's purposes, not his own. What was really at the heart of this temptation was a cross. Excuse me, a crown without a cross. All of these things that are being offered to Jesus is what the Father has already offered Him, isn't it? We're told in Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1, that when Jesus submitted himself to his Father's will, completed his task, what happened? He, he received, he became the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He gets the kingdoms, he gets the crown. But it's through the cross. Not by worshiping Satan, but by, by following the Father's will. 
crown without a cross. And friend, this temptation that Jesus faces is the same temptation that you and I face in everyday life. We want the crown, but we do not want the cross. And I I hope to remind you that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Friend, people who pick up crosses don't put them down again. They get hung on them. Dying to self is a natural act of following Jesus. Self-denial. It hurts to follow Jesus. And this is why uh, we've been teaching you these songs of affliction. Because, you see, we've been lulled into a sort of American utopianism that sees that, that this is our best life. Friend, this life stinks. This life is broken. If, I mean, if you think that this world is getting better, if you, if you have some sort of dream of America being great again, oh, friend, your hope is in the wrong place. Your heart is, is here and now. We're almost home, friends. Don't put your anchor in here. You anchor into this place, friend. You're going you're gonna to die with this place. The King is coming. And every knee will bow before Him. We're almost home, friend. Keep going. Press on. Don't give up now. Don't look to the sort of fleeting things of this world, the treasures and pleasures that this world offers you. Oh, they will be gone tomorrow. No, we need the crown with the cross. If you want to receive glory and be in glory, it will come through the sufferings of Jesus. I just read this morning, First Baptist Jacksonville puts out a statement of faith affirming biblical definition of human sexuality and gender. And they are hated by their community. It's a spectacle in Jacksonville right now. They've been made a spectacle. Friend, this world isn't growing to love you more. It will never accept your doctrines of of Christ and doctrines of grace. This world will never accept these things apart from the miraculous power of the new birth. We must have a cross if we are to have heaven. Lastly and very quickly, Jesus is tempted to doubt God's faithfulness. He takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, the very highest point, looking out on the Kidron Valley. He looks out there at all the wondering glory of Israel. And he says to them, jump off of this thing and the angels will save you and you, you, won't, even, you won't even get a little scratch. A little speck of dust won't touch you. It's almost like a daredevil stunt. He, he wants Jesus to go up on that top of the pinnacle, jump off, and be saved by this angelic beings and this host of angels, and then people will believe you are the Son of God. Do this sort of daredevil stunt, and then everyone will know that you are the one true and living God. And fascinatingly enough, what does Satan do? He seems to kind of caught on with Jesus' game a bit, doesn't he? He says, oh, if this little fellow is going to use Scripture, I'll use it too. He seems to like it. I'll use it too. And so he begins to quote Scripture, doesn't he? He throws Scripture at Jesus. He says, listen, I know the Bible. Uh, what a reminder that the, that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. Half-truths are not true. 
at all. He seeks to distort God's word in such a way as to prove that God only acts to selfishly serve himself, doesn't he? That, that, that God is only doing this work of redemption selfishly, not for glory. We're reminded it as the story unfolds that the Father will not spare His own Son. He won't command His angels concerning Him. As the Son dies upon the cross, we are told that the Father forsakes the Son. He's the forsaken one. He doesn't spare Him at all. But He gave Him up for us all. Nothing will stop God's purposes to save His people. Not Satan. Not anyone around Him. And the point remains that where Israel failed to trust God in the wilderness, Jesus here passes every test. At every turn, Jesus proves Himself to be the sacrifice we all need. And this sort of ominous cloud hangs over the text there at the end in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, as the story goes on, we know that Satan enters into Judas. And Judas betrays Jesus, and Peter denies him in rebellion against him. Jesus is the obedient son. Who is He? He's the eternal Son of God who came to save sinners. Friend, this story of Jesus' temptation, genealogy and baptism is more than learning a few quick tricks to fight temptation. I don't think this story is about you and I learning how to fight temptation. I don't think it's about an example to follow. I think that the point is that if Jesus had not gone into that wilderness, then He would not have been the sacrifice that you and I need. I think the point of the story is, is that you and I are going to fall to temptation every single day of our life. Just like Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He obeyed. Where you and I fail to glorify God, Jesus perfectly obeyed. He lived the life we should have. And it is only because Jesus resisted first that we ever resist any temptation at all. You see, we don't want to get these out of order. It's because He succeeded that we then too can, can succeed. In the words of Ambrose, the early church father, Jesus was led into the desert for a purpose. In order to challenge the devil, if He had not fought he would not have conquered him for me. But he did. He did go into that wilderness. And he won your victory over sin and death. That's how we, we can sing these songs. The death is now gone. Sin is put away. Because Jesus went into the wilderness and he was successful. Because he is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory for the great things you have done. 
by sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sin. And not only our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. That those who would turn and trust in you might be delivered from sin and Satan. That, the, that those dungeon doors might burst forth and we might walk into the light of your glory and make it home. Oh, Father, what a sweet reminder that all that we have is yours through Christ our Lord. Let us depend upon him even now in the midst of the difficulties of life, the sin that is beholden to us and seems to be winning against us. Oh, Father, may we be reminded that we are victorious through Christ and him alone. Help these truths to sink into our soul for your glory and our good in Christ's name.